The rest of you, I'd invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Matthew. It's in the New Testament. It's the first book of the New Testament. If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, the text is in your order of worship. If you don't own a Bible, there's like five of them on the back table. Uh, one of those is yours, so go pick it up. You can pick it up now or you can pick it up later, but pick it up. Please take it with you. That's our gift to you. So while the kids are heading out, let me remind us what we're doing here. Last week, we ended our time in Ecclesiastes. Um, next week, we begin our summer series called The Walk, which is going to be looking at what the practice of the Christian life looks like. Look, the Christian life, uh, Christianity is, makes the really bold claim that it's not just a belief system, but it's something that lays claim on your entire life. It's not just something that you kind of hold to up here, but it's something that needs to work down down here into your heart and then work out through your hands. So it's, it's something that, is, that Jesus actually lays claim on your entire life. And, you know, the reality is, uh, to use the language we use in Ecclesiastes, when we make something ultimate, we begin to order our lives around it. So if we're going to make Jesus ultimate, then we begin to order our lives around him. Um, and so what we're going to be doing over the summer is to talk through what a life transformed by the grace of God in Jesus Christ looks like and how we grow into that, okay? But this week, we're going to look at a bigger question. And as a bigger question, it kind of, like I said earlier, it kind of becomes a bridge. It, it takes us out of Ecclesiastes, but brings us into, into this series called The Walk. It kind of sums up the last one, brings us into the next one. And it does so by speaking to a big question. Now that Jesus lived for us, died for us, and rose again for us, what are we here for? What are we here for? And that is a big question. And the reality is we could answer that in a million ways, but I want to speak this morning in, in a way that utilizes the, the words of Jesus, the, the last words that Jesus said right before he ascended into heaven. And if you're unfamiliar with that language, look, Christians believe this really weird thing that Jesus rose bodily from the grave, and then he, he actually went up to heaven bodily and is seated right now at the right hand of God, sits on a throne right now where he rules the world. I know, it's crazy, right? Um, but that's, that's what Christians believe. And so right before he did that, he gives to his people a mandate, a purpose statement, something that we as his people are to be about. And that's his mission. So if you have your place in uh, Matthew 28, it's the very, this is like the last few verses of Matthew's gospel. If you have your place there in Matthew 20, I ask you to stand in honor of God's word. That's our habit here as we come into the preaching of the word. I'm going to be reading verses 16 through 20. Okay? This is God's word, friends. It lays claim on us. It, it, it's not just something we picked, thought this would be a good one. Right? God's word actually lays claim on us. Let's hear it in that way. The eleven disciples went into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had commanded them and Seeing him, they worshipped. Some doubted. And Jesus, coming to them, spoke to them, saying, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything which I have commanded you. Behold, I'm with you always even to the ends of the age. This is God's word given so that we might flourish. Would you pray with me? Father, no matter what we brought into this room here, we're all in the same place. We are all in need of the grace of God in Jesus. And so I ask, Lord, that you would open our eyes, soften our hearts to hear that, uh, to see it, to receive it. 
Holy Spirit, would you come and and do the work that only you can do? Lord, as we encounter Christ today, we pray that you would work in us that we might know him and, and be equipped that when we leave this place, we might show him. We are your people and ask that you would meet with us even now. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat. Look, there's a ton in this passage I want to that we need to get to, so I want to dive right in if we can. Uh, there's an outline in your bulletin if that's helpful to you. We're going to look um, at, at this passage in three ways. We're going to look at the authority of the mandate. Okay, we're going to look at the the mission of the mandate, and then finally the presence of the mandate. Okay, the mandates, the authority of it, the mission of it, and then the presence of it. Okay. Now, here's the thing. If you've been a Christian for a while, you have probably heard this passage or, or, um, or at least parts of it at some point. Uh, many of us, though, probably aren't familiar with it at all. And honestly, it probably sounds strange for us, right? Because some of the things that, that are, are said here are coming from the mouth of Jesus. And, and that is not what we've, some of these things are not what we've come to expect of Jesus. Um, but we all need to hear this, especially because of how we've probably misheard it in the past. So let's begin with the authority of this mandate first with the comfort. Look down at verses 16 to 18. And actually, lunchtime. All right. Um, Actually, before we get to the words of of Matthew, let me speak really quick to the one writing them. So this book was written by a dude named Matthew. Let me tell you a little bit about Matthew. Matthew is writing an account of Jesus. Before he came to follow Jesus, Matthew was a tax collector, which in the ancient world isn't like an IRS agent. It's more like a government-sponsored shakedown artist. Like, that's what Matthew did. He, he um, took taxes from, from people, and not just from people. Like, we, we got to get this right. So, the people that Matthew is taking taxes from are uh, occupied people. And he's taking taxes from them to support the occupiers, Right? To support the, the government and the army that's occupying them. The same government and army that actually um, abuses them. And I don't just mean like, well, they're kind of hardcore police. I mean, we're talking the soldiers were known to rape and, and murder people without recourse. Like, there's nothing you can do about it. Because they're Rome and they're in charge. And so Matthew is taking money from the Jewish people to support the people that are occupying them. And oh, by the way... When, um, to support himself, what he does is he takes a little more than what Rome asked for. So he's making money off of these people while supporting their occupiers, right? Not entirely popular. However, the dude lives large. Like, he makes a ton of money until Jesus comes. Because he could have kept up that job. That was a contract. He had that contract for as long as he wanted it. But something about Jesus made him leave all the quan on the table and follow him. Okay, so that's the guy who wrote this. Now let's look at, look at verses 16 and 17 really quick. These are like my favorite verses in the entire Bible. Okay, it says this. The eleven disciples went into Galilee to the mountain that Jesus had commanded them. And seeing him, they worshipped, but some doubted. Okay, let me catch you up. Forty-two days ago, Jesus was executed 42 days before this, not like 42 days before now, but before this passage, Jesus was executed by, by uh, Roman officials being uh, goaded on by Jewish authorities, okay? So Jesus had been executed violently on the cross, uh, crucified, but then 40 days before this, he rose from the dead, started hanging out again with his remaining followers. They start walking around telling people, dude, is raised from the dead. Like crazy stuff is going on. And then finally he tells them, like, look, 
I'm about to head out of town, so what I want you to do, go into Galilee, go to this mountain that I told you about. Galilee is like a northern province. It's north of, of the, the general area of Judea, of, of Israel. Um, but it's where most of these dudes are from, okay? So they're going back home, to, in a sense. They knew the mountain. They went to this mountain. And then Jesus begins, he, he, he's going to say something to them. So they go meet him on a mountain of Galilee. They go to the mountain. Jesus is there, just like he said it would be. And Matthew tells us that they see him and worshipped him. Strange enough, because they're first century Jews. You worship God, right? Says something about Jesus. We, we can't get to that. But they worshipped him, but some doubted. That is awesome. Think about that for a minute. I want you to think about, it. you and I, some of us have our doubts about Jesus, right? And we think, well, I have my, thank you, Julian. We have, we have these doubts about Jesus, and, but, you know, if he were just standing there, we wouldn't. Dude is standing right in front of them. They're worshiping, and some are like, yeah, I don't know. Ah, mm, touching, I'm not, just not sure. Like, what is that? Like, look, if you were trying to make up a story, this is a sidebar, if you were trying to make up a story, about your resurrected leader. And now this dude came back to life and now he's going to go. You would never admit this. Why would you admit this? You're basically saying like, look, you should really listen to what, everything I have to say. And oh, by the way, when the dude was standing bodily in front of me, I wasn't really sure. Like, uh, all right, that's just a sidebar. Then Jesus starts speaking. Look down at verse 18. He says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Now stop. This is the part that we always gloss over, but this is literally, and I mean this literally, the most revolutionary statement that has ever been made. Think about it for a minute. These, these guys are standing in Galilee, which is the backwater province of the most powerful empire the world has ever seen. Rome stretched from India to England and down the Mediterranean into northern Africa. It had the strongest military the world had ever seen. This was the most powerful uh, nation ever. And all of us know that Rome was ruled by one dude. And that dude's name was Caesar. Caesar ruled Rome. If anyone on the planet had the gumption to be able to say, all authority belongs to me, it was Caesar. It was Caesar. But Jesus is saying it. And he's not just saying he's the actual ruler of the world, not just of the earth, but also of heaven. He's basically saying, it's all mine. All of it. Anything that's ever been made, it's mine. Well, where does he get that? Look, it's this, it's this. Not to be too trite. I don't want to be too trite. But he gets that from the fact that he died and rose again. Right? Listen, Rome did its worst to Jesus. You can't really do a whole lot worse than nailing a dude to a crossbeam of wood and hanging him there until he asphyxiates. That's what crucifixion was. You hang somebody in an uncomfortable position where they can't quite get a breath and you hang them there until they no longer can. Right? Until they're tired of pushing against those very nails to get their body into the right position to take a breath in. That, there, there's very little else worse you can do to someone than that. And Jesus said, is that all you got? Like, he rises from the dead. He's like, is that, is that it? He won. Look, look, the Romans and the Jewish authorities executed Jesus because of the claim that he's making right here. He claimed to be Messiah. Now, we have different 
visions of what that means. Normally, it's some kind of religious guru, right? In the Old Testament, which is, which is the Bible that Jesus read, the, the Messiah was God's king of the world. Like, it was, that was God's king, the one who would come and make the world right, restore us to God. And that is what Jesus is claiming here. Jesus is saying that everything he is about to say to them, the entire rest of the passage, is based on the fact that he is the sole ruler of all of reality. He is it. He is, in fact, the rightful authority on the planet. But remember, some of you are thinking, Rick, that is crazy. I just walked here. Like, I know what's outside of these doors. And so do I. And so did they. Caesar still sat on a throne. Caesar sat on a throne right then. Some of these folks are going to be killed by that guy. Right? Caesar sat on a throne. Jesus is claiming this as a reality apart from what they necessarily see, right? Caesar did his worst to Jesus, and he rose from the dead. And can I just tell you, when a dude rises from the dead, you believe what he says, and then you follow him. And that's what they're doing. And that brings us to the call itself. Look down at verse 19. Now, just to be technical, structurally, the call comes in the mission that we'll get to in a second. But I want to note the first thing that it says there. He says this, really simple, go, therefore, in light of the fact that I am the only authority of all reality, go. Now, let me remind us, those that are gathered around Jesus at this point, now, Matthew focuses on the 11, right? Uh, There's another part of the New Testament that talks about this is in Acts chapter 1, and that talks about the fact there are others there than just the 11. Matthew's focusing on the 11, but the point is this, the folks that are there with Jesus are the only ones who are following him. It's not like they're representatives or they're just the professionals. These are the only Christians on the planet at the time. This is not an elite. This is the church. Okay? Secondly, he's telling them to go into all the nations. Now think about that. Because Jesus has just said that he has all authority. And by all authority, he means all authority. Right? All authority. And this means that the nations that he's sending them to are actually his. They're his. So he tells his people to go to all the nations. Jesus isn't saying, listen, you know, I I know that I'm your authority, and I want you to go to those who will also accept me as their authority, and then we'll all... No, 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 no. No, no. Jesus isn't interested in whether anyone actually acknowledges his authority... He's saying, I am it. Whether you acknowledge that or not, he says, I am the authority. All authority is mine. And so he says, go to all that is mine. I mean, that's gutsy, right? I mean, for many of us, that's an entire, that that is insanely offensive. Jesus actually is laying claim on me whether or not I care about him. This isn't, I mean, look, most of us grew up thinking Jesus is like, you know, gentle Jesus, meek and mild. And and here he is claiming he's king of the world. And and so his people are all to go into the world and do something, which we'll get to in a second, that that for him is king. It's offensive. Let's just be honest about that. But the last thing about this is this. These, These folks are called to go in spite of the fact that they have responsibilities. I know we don't think about that often. We know at least one of these dudes had a, had a spouse, right? We know Peter was married. He had a mother-in-law. You don't often get a mother-in-law without a spouse. Not sure why you would want one, 
without a spouse, okay? So anyway, he, but he has, he has a mother-in-law, which means he has a wife. He's also a small business owner, right? He's a fisherman, but he has boats under his employ. He has multiple employees under him. And Jesus isn't saying, hey, I'm going to send only those dudes who have no family connections, who, who don't, you know, they don't have responsibilities. They don't have to go to work. They don't have to, to take care of their families. He's saying, no, 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 no. Go. <laughs> go. Look, and it wasn't just Peter. James and John were part of that little small business enterprise, as was Peter's brother Andrew. All of them are sitting on the mountain listening to Jesus talk. He's saying, go. Go in all the nations. The why about that comes from the authority. Look, all authority is given to him, which means if you're a first century Jew, which all of these people were, right? They're first century Jews. If you're a first century Jew, that means that Jesus is king of the world. And he got there according to the New Testament because what he had done 42 days before this. He lived the life we couldn't, which meant that he was perfect. Look, all of us, we have that phrase in our culture, right? Nobody's perfect. Jesus was. He was. So that's not entirely accurate. Nobody today is perfect, maybe. Right? I get that. I fully believe that. Jesus was, though. But then, before God, he bore the punishment of our rebellion. And then he rose from the dead. God dealt with our sin in Jesus. He reconciles us to himself in Jesus. And so, the fuel for these people to go, to, to, to leave, some of them will leave behind some of these things... The the fuel for them to go pours out of the finished and accomplished work of Jesus. But here's the problem. It's just a problem. We'll come back to this a little later. I just want you to begin thinking about it. Jesus is telling his people right then and there to go and make disciples. And now, instead of go and make, we sit and watch. He calls us to go and make and we sit and watch. Now, don't check out on me. Okay, some of you are checking out. You're like, here it comes. Crazy preacher, here it comes. Remember, this is the whole of Jesus' followers right now. Not a few. Jesus sends his people, not his professionals. Jesus sends his people, not his professionals. Throughout the scriptures, anytime in the Bible, when you see someone have a personal encounter with God, whether that person is Abraham or Moses or Isaiah, or Jeremiah, or Peter, or Paul. It's the same thing. They have a personal encounter with God, and the first thing out of God's lips after they have an encounter with Him is, Go! Isaiah meets Him in the temple, and he's like, I'm going to die. I am unworthy of being here. And God says, Go! To Abraham, he comes to him, and the first thing he says, Pack up, brother, you're on the road now. You're going. To Moses, he's like, Take off your shoes. It's holy ground where you stand. And he tells him, I'm sending you. You're going to go. To Peter, he's, Peter's in the boat. He's throwing out nets. And Jesus is like, hey, th- try the other side. He's like, dude, you're a carpenter. What do you know about fishing? He's like, all right, fine. He throws it out on the other side. He picks up all these fish. And he looks at Jesus. He's like, away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. Jesus says, I'm going to make you into a fisher of men. Go. Paul's on the road to Damascus, religious dude. He's actually killing Christians, right? He's, he's going into towns to haul Christians out, throw them in jail and kill them. Jesus confronts him on the road. I know we think he knocked him off a horse. Nothing in the Bible about that. It's a great painting that says that. Nothing in the Bible. But he confronts him on the road. He goes blind. He says, guess what, Paul? You're going to go for me now. 
Anytime someone has an encounter with Jesus, an encounter with the, the, with the God of the Bible, they are sent. And so these people have an encounter with the risen Jesus, and he tells them the same thing everyone has always been told. Go. Now, that's the authority of the mandate. Now let's look at its mission. Stay on verse 19. He says to go and to make disciples. Now, disciples is a churchy word. I don't know who uses that word anywhere other than in church. Um, a disciple basically is a learner or a follower, but it's not just like any learner or follower. It's not like go, go um, I don't know, go make plumbers. Like it's a, it's a learner or follower of Jesus, okay? Uh, and so, like I said before, structurally, this is the center of the whole passage. This entire passage is about making disciples. I wish I could show you that. It's in the original Greek. I, I, I can't really show it, but it, it's about making disciples. Now, if... And, and he says, to make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, if you're not familiar with Christianity, Christians believe that God exists in one essence, but three persons, right? Um, there's a, pa- a pastor by the name of Darren Patrick, he puts it this way. God is one what and three who's at the same time. One what, but three who's. One, one essence, one, one um, substance, but three persons, okay? Okay. Um, in other words, when he says, go and make disciples, baptizing the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, what he's saying is, go and make more people Christians. Hmm. Let's be honest. Some of us are really offended by this, right? We're offended by this because that is like, you're not supposed to do that. You can believe what you believe, but please don't make other people believe what you believe. But, but listen, it, you have to understand why Christians believe this is important. Because Christians believe that all of humanity, including us, nobody's exempt from this. All of humanity is in rebellion against God by nature and stuck in independence. And what I mean by that is that God created us for a dependent relationship on him. We're supposed to be tight with him. But because of our sin, because of, and that's a churchy word, but because of our our rebellion against him, we are now by nature, like born into it, distant from him. Independent. We seek independence from him. Now, that sounds a little weird, so let me explain, because there's more than one way to to look independent from God. Because when I say independent from God, when I say sin, most of us think train wreck. Like, we think immoral. And we're right. Okay? In the sense that, in one sense, our independence can look very immoral. It can look like using people. It can look like, you know, uh, trying, to, trying to get ours, whether ours is by using people for our pleasure or, or uh, for money or for whatever. We, we use people. We, we do things that we know in our hearts we probably shouldn't. That, yes, that is, on, on one hand, what the Bible says is independence from God. But there is another side to it as well. Because independence from God can also look very moral can look very clean and nice and good. If we're trying to be moral so that God will like us, so that people will have a good, so that we'll have a good reputation before others, so that, um, so that things will work for us because we believe that the world works on some kind of karmic uh, mechanism where if I put good things in, I get good things out. Right? That is independent as well. God says, look, it looks really nice. It looks real pretty. You can shine it up real good. But it's independent of me. It's not done out of a dependent relationship with me. And so it's still distant from me. In other words, he says, that is sin. 
That is sin. Which means that everybody in this room, I don't care what you walked in with, we're all in the same boat. Every one of us. We are all in the same boat. There is nothing wrong with you that's not wrong with me. There's nothing wrong with me that's not wrong with you. We are all in the same boat. Now, here's the important thing. Christianity doesn't give you a set of rules to keep to make things right. It doesn't give you rules to keep. It gives you a person to know. The way for us to leave our independence is to stop placing our hopes and our abilities to make things right, our abilities to make life work for us, or on some other system, and instead to place them on Jesus. We depend on Jesus. And listen to me. If this is the only way that God has given us to return from our independence back to dependence on Him, if it's the only way that God has given us to to escape the judgment that is due for our rebellion against God, if you and I as Christians, if you're not a Christian in this room, just hold off on a second, but if as Christians we are not telling people about this, we are the most unloving people that have ever existed. Because you're telling people, go to hell! I don't care about you! If we're not, if, if that's our attitude, that's what, it, inevitably, it means we could care less about people. If we didn't tell people about this, if we don't, Christians, like, if, if you believe that the only hope for the world is Jesus, but you withhold that hope from the world, what you're telling the world is, I don't care about you. It's not unloving to share Jesus with people. It's the only loving thing to do. Two more things about this before we move on. First, notice that Jesus is not saying, go and make disciples so that I will like you. <laughs> okay? It's not go and do this because, I, you know, I want to, you need to make some stuff up to me. You've been bad, so go be good so I can like you. Jesus conquered sin and hell. Jesus has done all that needed to be done to rescue us from our betrayal of God. And now he offers that freely to any who would come purely out of his grace. Look, Christians don't seek to make other people Christians because we are insecure. We need other people on our team to make us feel good about ourselves. And we don't do it so that God will be happy with us. We do it because God is happy with us only in Jesus. In other words, Christians are just beggars telling other beggars where to find bread. That is all we are. That is all we are. Okay? Second thing about that, though. Making disciples implies something. If you have to make a disciple, it implies something. You're not born one. Okay? Listen to me. You may not be able to remember a day when you didn't love Jesus and have faith in him, but you aren't born a Christian. And that is so important here because we are, we are in the Bible Belt, right? It's kind of the upper region where the holes are, but we're in the Bible Belt, which means that most of us grew up believing that if we just go to church or if we're just an American and not a Buddhist then that we must be a Christian. Friend, Christian, becoming a Christian is about placing your faith in Jesus. If you are here this morning and you claim to be a Christian, but you don't have affection for Jesus, you don't have a desire to serve him, and you do not have, a, have grief, grief, not shame, but grief when you turn away from him, I need you to ask yourself a question. Am I really what I think I am? Am I really what I think I am? Because I think the answer to that is probably not. Disciples are made. 
and they are made by other disciples. In other words, multiplication is the call of every Christian. That leads to conforming. Look down at verse 20. Jesus tells them not just to baptize, but to teach them, teach those folks they baptize to obey everything he commanded. In other words, Jesus is not looking for converts. He's looking for followers. Jesus is not looking for converts. He's looking for followers. A disciple of Jesus is not marked by a decision made 20 years ago at a youth camp. You with me? Is not marked by, by someone who you, you walked the aisle because someone had played just as I am for the upteenth time. And you're like, fine. If that's all it's going to take for me to get out of here. And you walk down and, and you know, that, that is not what Jesus is after. He's after followers, right? And a follower of Jesus is marked by a faith in Jesus that seeks to bring their whole life under his authority. Teaching them to obey implies something as well, right? That it doesn't come automatically. That it doesn't come automatically. Look, we have this tendency to think we pray a prayer and then it doesn't matter what we do. But Jesus seems to think it does or he wouldn't tell them and also go tell them, teach them to obey. What I mean is this. Jesus' work was not just to deliver you from the penalty of sin, but its power as well. His work doesn't, wasn't just to deliver you from the penalty that comes with it, but the power that binds us to it. Now, some of you in this room have been Christians for a while. You have this word running around your head right now. You're like, legalist. Like, it's in your head and you're like wanting to throw that dart at me. But wait, 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 wait. Legalism is about doing things. It's about doing obedience. It's about obeying to make God like you. What I am saying and what Jesus is saying is that we obey not to achieve God's grace, but because we've received it. We don't obey to achieve anything. We obey because we've received. And that's what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about making disciples and baptizing them. Thus, you've already received the grace of God, and therefore then you go from that and obey, not because you have to get it or God's going to be angry and smite you, but because you want your life to conform to the image of Jesus. A life transformed by Christ will seek to become like Christ. All right, I'm getting a little long here, so let me get to the presence. Look down at verse 20. Jesus says this, followers go and multiply because I'm the authority of the world. Like that's summing up what, what he's, he just said. Go and multiply yourselves because I am the authority of the world. And this is important for us to get because the context of what comes next, of what he's about to say, is that statement. You with me? The context of what he's about to say is go. And we get this wrong all the time. When Jesus says, I am with you always, we're going to get to that. He is saying it to those to whom he had just said, go into all the world and make disciples. Let me get specific here. Jesus is promising his presence to those that are going. Jesus is promising his presence to those that are going to make disciples. And if I may be so bold, not to those who are sitting and watching. Why is this? It is because, friends, this mission isn't our mission. It's His. It's His mission. You and I, listen to me, you and I can't make disciples. I can't change a heart. I may be an okay communicator, but I can't change your heart. I can't change my own heart better at your heart. I can't make a disciple. 
We can't see other people know Jesus. Look, the Apostle Paul said that you and I were dead in our trespasses and sins. I can't raise the dead. Jesus can. Jesus can. He says he'll be with us as we go because he is the one who is going. Okay? Lastly, let me, that comes to the promise, right? The content, his presence. He says this, I will be with you always. Now, listen. If you are a Christian here this morning, it is not because you are smarter than your neighbor. Right? It is not because you both got the same word and you're like, yeah, I think that's good. That, that sounds like a good escape escape patch. I'll take that. And the other guy's like, yeah, I'm not real sure. And you're like, well, man, you dumb. Like, you know, like, it's, a, it's not because you're smarter than your neighbor. It's not because you're more moral than your coworker, And it isn't because God is lucky to have you. It is because Jesus lived perfectly, died sacrificially, and rose victoriously for you. It is because Jesus came to you and he did not knock on the door of your heart waiting for entry. He kicked the door down, raised you from the dead, and said, come follow me. That is what he did. He is the one who does this work. If you are a Christian here this morning and you're thinking, Rick, I can't make a disciple, you are in good company because neither can I. That is not what we are called to do. That is why the mandate is based on his authority and grounded in his presence. If Jesus said, go and get this done, we would all be lost. He said, go, go get this done, man. I got grapes to eat on my throne. Like, and it's like, if you think it is overwhelming to you, I want you to think about the guys that he first called. Look, Jesus told them this. He tells Peter, and he tells the other dudes in the boat after they catch the fish, he says, come and follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Come and follow me, and I will make you. Not, and I'll teach you some good tricks, and you can figure this out, and you know, if you play this song enough times, and make this kind of impassioned pleases, come and follow me, and I will make you into fishers of men. You and I get overwhelmed at this. Our city is about 30,000 people, right? There's probably, I don't know, like we'll say between 5 and 7% of the population of Stanton is probably an evangelical Christian this morning. That may be low. It might be high, right? Okay? There are 11 dudes on the mountain in Galilee. The rest of the world is non-Christian. You think we're overwhelmed? <laughs> Jesus is saying, I'm the king. I've got this. But you need to go. And I will be with you. Friends, we cannot make people come to know Jesus. We are simply called to arrange an encounter with Jesus. And he will take care of what he takes care of. I've seen it time and time. Some of you, I've seen it with some of you in this room. Right? Some of you are like, I'm the most unlikely person in the, in, in the world to be sitting in this room. I know. Me too. Jesus will do what he does. Let me leave you with a couple of thoughts. First, a question I heard this past week. In light of this, in light of everything I've just said, are the things you are living for this morning worth Christ's dying for? Are the things that you are living for this morning worth Christ's dying for. 
you are a Christian here this morning, Jesus died to see the lost rescued and a world transformed by transformed people. Are the things that you are living for worth Christ's dying for? Let me say it another way. The dreams that you have for your life, the dreams that you have, are your dreams for your life worth Jesus dying for? If not, what are you doing? What are we doing? Playing in the mud puddles while the beach is right across the street. Playing with mud pies while there's a feast in front of us. What are we doing? As Jesus followers, friends, we give our lives to something because Jesus gave his life for it. Secondly, some of you are freaking out right now because you think I'm telling you go be a crazy evangelist. I'm not. Okay? Now listen, some of you, some of you are. Some of you are gifted in that way and you need to quit sitting on your gift because God gives gifts to people so that other people might flourish and you're sitting on it. You're hating people right now. But that's not the majority of us, right? The majority of us are not that kind of person. What I am saying, though, is that we are called to multiply ourselves. If you do not feel competent or confident to share the gospel with your friends and neighbors, just bring them here. I'll do it. Okay? Just bring them in here. I'll do it. I'll do it. And then you can go, what do you think of that crazy dude? He's screaming. Like, what? whoa. Like, or you can come ask one of the elders and we can help you figure out how to do that. Okay? But, but, I would ask you this. Who are you praying for? Who in your mind is full in your vision for sitting right next to you in worship because their life has been transformed by the incalculable grace of God in Jesus Christ? Who are you praying for? Who are you inviting to your small group so they can see what actual Christian community is all about? We're not perfect people. We're all messed up trying to help each other gather our mess and bring it to Jesus. Who are you bringing to worship with you? Okay, let, me, let me get even more specific. If you are a Christian here this morning and you have turned go and make into sit and watch, something has got to change. It is beyond strange. Yeah. It is flat out hypocritical to sit in this room and sing about how great the work of Jesus is and then to leave this place and never mention it to a soul. How great is that work? The newest album comes out that you love and you're mentioning it to everybody. Right? You're sitting in here singing with me. We're all sitting in here. We're all in the same boat. We're singing about how great the work of Jesus is and we leave this place and it's mums the word until next Sunday when I get to sing about it again. That's not just strange, friends. That is hypocritical. Guys, this is not a call given to the few, the professionals or the leaders. This is a call given to the followers of Jesus Christ. And it's not a call to be executed with some program where you walk up to someone with some fake survey and ask them a scripted set of questions and then hopefully you can get to your scripted set of stuff to tell them and then you can walk away and go, whoo, got that done. Like that, this is a call that's to be executed in life, in relationship with people, with faces and hearts that beat and lives that are lost. 
what you're living for worth Christ dying for? At Holy Cross, friends, we are unapologetic about the fact that this is why we exist. This church is here to help people encounter Jesus, to know Jesus, and then to show Jesus to others. And this is the mission that all of us are called to, not by ourselves, but in joining our victoriously risen and gracious Lord. Would you pray with me? Lord, there is not a single person in this room, including myself, who does not need the grace of the gospel right now. Now, we're coming up with reasons to say, to to defend ourselves and to justify. We're coming up with reasons to say, no, no, no. Either, no, Rick, you don't understand. I'm really good enough. God doesn't, I don't really need Jesus. Or, Rick, you don't understand. It's really hard to talk to people. Or, Rick, you don't understand. I don't really know anybody who doesn't know Jesus. Lord, we have tons of reasons to justify ourselves. But in the end, none of that will help. We need to hear, Lord, we need the Holy Spirit to come and convince us of our need for you and then to bring us back to the cross of Christ and from that cross to go as his disciples did. For some of us, some of us in this room, that's going to mean going somewhere weird, somewhere distant. But for the majority of us, it's going to mean just going across the street, going next door, going to the next cubicle, going to the next desk sitting next to us in our classroom. It's going to mean... um, it's, it's not as far to travel. Because you've called your people to go and make disciples, to multiply. Forgive us where we haven't. Empower us for where we need to. And Lord, walk with us. Lord, let your presence go before us. That as we go and do this, we may experience you, know you more, and show you more. And Lord, in that, uh, to see others, see the city transformed by transformed people. We ask this, Lord, in the gracious and powerful name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen.
Friends, Christians have been praying that prayer for 1,700 years. Because our need now is no different than their need then. And the grace that we receive now is no different than the grace they received then. Because when Christians confess their sins, trusting only in Jesus, we are met not with scorn or with a wagging finger, but with open arms and words of love like this from Jeremiah 31. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. And no longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. They'll all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. Friends, in Christ and in Christ alone, your sins are forgiven. Which is a great mystery. It's the mystery of the faith that during this season of our church we proclaim to one another. It's there printed in your bulletin. Friends, let us proclaim the mystery of the faith. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Hallelujah. Friends, in Christ alone our sins are forgiven. In Christ alone do we have peace with one another and with, uh, and with God. And so during this season we stand, we greet one another with that as a way to remind ourselves and each other that the work of Christ has broken down every wall that divides us. Friends, the peace of the Lord be with you. Stand and greet one another, please. Okay, I'll just keep it. Thank you. All right, guys, let's go ahead and find our seats if we can. Uh, Hold that for me. My son decided to give me a gift right before. Ah, ha ha. This is a fun day for me. Um, listen, the last few weeks in our church, we've had, we've had a phenomenal kind of... Um, we, we, we've had this great joy of being brought into several different things, right? Um, if you've been here for the last few weeks,